0: that view of what America is has changed. And to me, it's so much more interesting and so much more exciting.
1: Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who feel deeply and inspire. It's election season in this world, and each one reveals how evenly each country with the semblance of democracy is split. Right-wing Netanyahu won in Israel, Lula won in Brazil, and thankfully, Bolsonaro seems to have conceded the election, Uh, but that doesn't mean he's retiring to his country estate or he isn't going to challenge something. Existing autocrats Xi and Putin are flexing their muscle further. And now, this week, the midterm election in the United States is underway, with pundits rocking back and forth in their predictions and the country on edge. Democracy is surely on the ballot. It seems a perfect time to bring you, again, the Heather Cox Richardson interview from July 2020, when she was bullish on democracy in spite of the threats to it from then-President Donald Trump. Heather has been a cheerleader for all that Joe Biden has accomplished, but her view is barely heard due to the gale storm of hate coming out of the opposing party. And so I just really feel like this is the time to hear her again. Here are a few recent quotes from her letters from an American. She says Democracy was always a gamble. In 1776, the founders rejected the old idea that government should be based on hierarchies according to wealth or birth or religion. Americans are right to wonder if at long last, what George Washington called the great experiment has failed and that our founders have lost their extraordinary wager that regular people could govern themselves better than a few rich men could. And three times before, in the, in the 1850s, the 1890s, and the 1920s, oligarchs took over the American government and threatened to destroy democracy. In each case, they overreached, and regular folk took back their government. Make no mistake, she says now, America's experiment in popular sovereignty is in jeopardy. These are her words from 2022, and her words from 2020 can help us all this week defend our democracy as our ship of state is again listing so far we wonder if the union will hold. Enjoy, Heather. Uh, Hi, this is Vicki, and I'm here with Heather Cox Richardson for another episode of What Could Possibly Go Right?, and here's a little bio in Heather. She, I will say, I am a fangirl. I love Heather's work, uh, and it really serves me. So Heather Cox Richardson is Professor of History at Boston College and an expert on American political and economic history. She is the author of six books on American politics in a, and is a national commentator on American political history and the Republican Party. She is also a leading twitter historian explaining the historical background of modern political issues through Twitter threads, co-editor of We're History, a web magazine of popular history, and the author of Letters from an American, a chronicle of the Trump presidency since the Ukraine scandal broke. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Chicago Tribune. And so welcome, Heather. And I will say uh, from your um, from the blog, The Letters from an American. Um, I picked this up. Historians are fond of saying that the past doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. To understand the present, we have to understand how we got here. And that's where this newsletter comes in. This is a chronicle of today's political landscape, but because you can't get a grip on today's politics without an outline of American constitution and laws and economy and social customs, This newsletter explores what it means and what it has meant to be an American. So um, I love that the past doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And uh, in your work, I've been reading your books, and um, I see uh, that you have a deep interest in something that has has perplexed me and my pondered, which is the impossible con of this country this phrase with liberty and justice for all, it's a con. It is not a solvable equation. So, in this moment when the pandemic continues to burn through American society and our racial and colonial sins are being revealed, I wonder what you see emerging in this moment. What sparks of possibility you can reveal to us? It can be anything a person, a group, politics, a spirit, a fulcrum. I am sure you will surprise us with your answer to. What could possibly go right?
0: Well, I may not surprise you with my answer, although I'm very happy to have the opportunity to talk about this, Vicki, so thank you for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, people say to me all the time nowadays, you know, how do you keep your spirits up when you look at how just how terrible things are around us? And my answer to that is that my spirits are the best that they have been probably in uh, my lifetime studying American politics and the economy, because what is happening now is simply what has been happening for the past 30 years at least, but on steroids. And what always was really troubling to me was that it seemed that nobody was paying attention that the more you tried to call people's attention to things like signing statements under george w bush they were started of course during reagan uh the the way they're being used today and they 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 really went crazy under george w bush people sort of didn't pay attention and people like me kept calling attention to that and saying look look we're in trouble and not really getting any traction and now all of a sudden people are paying attention and saying Let's Look at what's happening around us. We have to regain control of American democracy. So first of all, I'm cheerful about the fact people are paying attention. But what does this mean in this moment? You know, what do I see that may be uh, something to look forward to and a big change for, for what could come out of this really traumatic, profoundly traumatic moment in America? And I see a lot of good things. Uh, first of all, the thing that jumps out at me first is that Americans understand now that democracy is not a spectator sport. They have really been on autopilot for quite a while now. And now all of a sudden they're waking up and saying, wait a minute, this is not the government I want to live under. This is not the society in which I want to live. And I need to do something. I personally need to do something to change that. Whether that means calling my senators, whether it means running for office, whether it means being in the streets, whether it means talking to my crazy neighbor and saying it's not acceptable for you to use that terminology in my home. All of those things are now in people's regular lives in a way that they haven't been in my lifetime anyway. And that, that first of all, I see is a really big positive change. We also have the fact that Americans are beginning to be able to, are beginning to be able to understand rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric and political lies. You know, we've had a problem now since at least the 1980s that a major political party has built its support, not on fact-based arguments, but rather on a narrative, on a narrative that separated us and them, and very clearly said that us tended to be heteronormative white males. And them was people of color and women who wanted the government to, you know, um, uh, equalize the playing field in America to make the playing field level. And somehow that that desire for equality of opportunity and equality of access to resources turned into in the in this narrative turned into being a special interest that was advocating in some form socialism or communism because what you wanted was a redistribution of wealth those are all themes that have been played played on very hard since the 1980s and have really warped our political discourse and now finally with the extraordinary disinformation coming out of the current administration. Increasingly, media is calling those tropes out as lies, and regular Americans are looking at their news and saying, wait a minute. Where are the facts behind this on both the right and the left. And the return to an enlightenment-based, fact-based reality seems to me to be key to everything else. So if that's what's going on in politics, and that's what I think is something to uh, that this moment might springboard into in our American political system, there's something much larger behind this and, and this cha- this political change. And that, to me, is that we are looking, I think, either at the triumph of what I call a toxic individualism but I actually don't think we'll go that way. We're looking at the rejection of a toxic individualism and people talk about toxic masculinity, but I think the issue is much bigger than that. And that is the political discourse really since the 1980s, but it has its roots in the 1950s. Um, The idea that what it means to be an American is to be sort of a cowboy, to be a a man out there taking care of his wife and children, um, dominating his wife and children, being uh, caring for them, but also dominating Dominating them, and a, a world in which that individualism is uh, rejects the idea of sort of community-based government that levels the playing field, that makes sure that women can compete in America as equals to men, not as wives and, and mothers. Uh, to make sure that people of color can be included in American society, not sort of as Uh, people who are tolerated, but rather as equals, who belong here just as much as anybody else does. And that that reimagining of what it means to be an American, not the cowboy individualism that was championed by Barry Goldwater, and then by Ronald Reagan, and then by George W. Bush, and now increasingly by the people in charge who insist that what it means to be an American is for government really to enable businessmen to do whatever they want and to direct the lives and the economy of everybody else. Uh, the rejection of that and and the replacement of it with something new is to me profoundly exciting because when you think of what that something new might be, as people of color and as women and as people who have previously felt disincluded in the American political system at least since the 1980s. Um, might construct, you know, it's a a wide open world. And what might that look like? You know, I look at the advertisements that came out in 2018 for for House races, especially, but for House and Senate races, videos that came out from people like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, or Amy McGrath in Kentucky. Uh, But there were a lot of them uh, that focused on Uh, people who wanted to use the government to protect community, to make sure that everybody had educations and that everybody had food and that we treated our natural resources fairly and that we protected the environment that rather than being a world that looks somewhat like the progressives of the 1930s and the 1940s, who again looked at a heteronormative uh, nuclear family as the centerpiece of America, we have younger people and people of color and women looking at America as being much more community-centered, not necessarily based in a nuclear family, but in a community. And what what might come out of that seems to me to be a very different kind of interpretation of what it means to be an American and one that I think will take us more successfully into the 21st and 22nd centuries than the ones that have proved so powerful in the 19th and 20th. So when I look at this moment and what might come out of it, I see a reworking of the American dream, if you will, to be a real American dream for everybody, not just for a really small segment of the population. And that actually is what keeps me going on the very very late nights that I've been living lately.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's interesting um, uh, because we connected through somebody that I worked with on the Center for a New American Dream, you know, and, and uh, it was, that was about consumerism and simplicity and frugality, et cetera. And so is it, what you're saying is that the American dream has been hijacked by a narrative that says the American dream is, this is a place where anyone can get rich to an American dream. what would, How would you articulate the American dream that you see as, as shimmering a uh, possibility for, in this moment? What would you say that is?
0: Well, traditionally, the American dream in the early republic was the idea that um, that any man could rise, uh, and initially, of course, they meant uh, white men, not not indigenous people, not men of color, um, that that anybody could rise because of the extraordinary resources on this continent, that they would permit people to apply their labor to those resources and produce more than they could consume. And as they did that, they would accumulate capital. In fact, early political economists in the the first half of the 19th century actually referred to capital as pre-exerted labor and after the civil war that american dream moves west and becomes the idea of the cowboy really a man again who theoretically doesn't want any interference from the federal government but who can work his way up just through hard work and uh, but but key to the the reconstruction American dream was that that cowboy was going to dominate people of color and that women really weren't part of that. You know, before the war, women were acting as the wives to those farmers who were working their way up. After the Civil War, the cowboy really doesn't have a lot of women unless they're the women who live above the saloons in the towns or there's somehow a a, a wife and mother who's off screen. You know, you think about Frederick Jackson Turner's great frontier in American history. There are no women in that book. I mean, he talks about communities, but there are no women. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not a book. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lecture. It's an article. Um, But that American dream that is really limited to men and sometimes inclusive of men of color uh, really doesn't address the, the inclusion in the American dream of women as equals or of people of color at all. And for the 21st century, I don't think that works any longer. And I think this moment where we recognize because of the pandemic and because of the extraordinary excesses of the Trump administration, just how limited that heteronormative white male vision is, is a moment when a lot of people, a majority of American people, look at that cowboy American dream or even the farmer American dream of the early 19th century and say, wait a minute, where am I in this dream? I'm as equal as, as any white man, I'm you know, producing for this society, I'm part of America, I live here, my people come from here, let's rewrite that American dream to include people like me. And we have the majority. Right, yeah. The face of America is, and
1: maybe that's part of the struggle right now is that the face of America, the, the actual face of the emerging America is a very different face from the face of the cowboy or farmer America, white male America. It's a very different place. And so so do you feel this is like a fulcrum moment, like it could teeter one direction or another, or do you feel like there's sort of like a destiny that's being realized through the traumatic rupture of this moment? Do you know what I mean? It's like, is, are we hanging by a hair or are we Uh, you know, living into something that we have to commit ourselves to, but that is is a table that's set for us.
0: I call it a knife edge. There is no doubt that America is walking a knife edge in which we could slide to one side and become, at least in the short term, a full-fledged fascist state. We could go the other way too and one of the things that i always talk about when i talk about the future and of course historians are prophets of the past not of the future but we get to choose i mean that's the beauty of a democratic system is that we get to choose which direction we're going to go. And we've really let this go far too much in one direction, at least over the last 20, 30 years. And it's going to be hard to regain uh, an America that responds to all of its people. But we can do it. And when we do that, you know, you said how different the face would be. I think it's interesting. Um, to people who have uh, lived in America for the last generation, your generation and my generation, that, that view of what America is has changed. And to me, it's so much more interesting and so much more exciting. You, know, you look at the pictures that are you know, emanating from the Trump administration of a whole bunch of older white men. And I just sit there and look at them and think, what dull conversations you must have. You know, where you've left three quarters of the brains in the country out of the picture and you're all just reinforcing each other. Where's the innovation? Where's the novelty? Where are the good new ideas and the bad new ideas? And when I say that, interestingly enough, I'm harking back to Abraham Lincoln. So this is not some, you know, 21st century middle-aged woman saying, you know, let's do everything new and progressive. No, this is exactly what Abraham Lincoln said when he said, you don't want to have an America that responds only to a few rich guys at the top, because they're going to concentrate wealth and concentrate power, and they won't innovate. They will increasingly reinforce their own views of the world and the country will stagnate. What you really want to do, Abraham Lincoln said in 1859 in a very famous speech in, um, in Wisconsin, is you wanna make sure that the government supports people at the bottom because they're the innovators. They're the ones with new ideas. They're the ones who are gonna move America forward and come up with the ideas that nobody else could. They're the hard workers. That's where we wanna put our energy. So when I talk about how exciting it is to see a country that has new music and new languages and new skin colors, what i'm saying is really that's what traditional americanism has looked like since the 1850s and that would be a very nice tradition for us to reinvigorate in the modern era wow so lincoln gave that speech
1: before the civil war you know i mean it was it was an affirmation that of the, really the soul of this nation, you know, like how this, you know, experiment was going to continue. But it took a lot of work to realize that. So do you see, do you see that we have a lot of hard work ahead of us? Is that what, you know, I guess is what you're saying, it's political work, you know, but, but we really, this like nose to the grindstone time, if we want to like, you know, tip it, tip off the knife edge in that, more holistic direction.
0: Well, I, I would go back a step and say that I don't think Lincoln's vision was ever fully enacted. And you know, the, I've written a lot about why that's the case. That vision of equality of opportunity for everybody and equality of access to resources for everybody really has never gone fully into, into um, our legal system or into our society or into our economy. Um, that doesn't say that it can't. I mean, that's I think the moment we're in right now. But as you say, Um, it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen because some president does an executive order. It's going to come about because we rebuild our society along more just lines and along fairer lines. And that's going to mean that a lot of people lose some things that they thought were their right right. But in the long term, and not even in the long term, really even in the very, very medium term, the riches that that will bring to our society far outweighs any losses that anybody might feel. Um, I just think we have to reframe the question and reframe it as, you know, what should America stand for and how does society best move forward? Does it move forward best when you let a few small, uh, you know, a a few people that are very wealthy, very well connected, very well educated, direct the, the... Society for the rest of us? Some people believe that. That's an old ideology in Western society that ran countries for generations. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you're better off putting your resources and your Uh, Your influence from people at the bottom people uh, who are are working hard and innovating and you and spread out opportunity to more people. That's what Abraham Lincoln was arguing. He's really the first to articulate that as an American principle and it's one that I believe, you know, that, that if we really want to innovate and to change the world, we want to, to make sure the government responds to people at the bottom, not to people at the top, because that's how societies best move forward, sort of by crowdsourcing uh, the government and society more than by saying, we'll pick two or three people and trust them to do what's right. Absolutely. What a windup. <laughs> that is... Um that's so affirming
1: without being uh, with at all pampering my desire to be safe and secure. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm already you know, noticing I have to move aside, you know, things that who am I am has to move aside to create room for this bubbling up for the, the novelty and innovation that comes from the margins. You know, that's what's gonna make us again. But isn't again. it exciting?
0: Totally. I mean, isn't it exciting? So, so yes, you know, when you look at this and we've got, you know, new artists and new music and new thoughts and, and, and do you like them all? Of course not. But, but what an exciting time to live as you watch us and primarily people younger than us, re-envisioning not only the, the country, but the world. I, I, I feel extraordinary privileged to, to be living in this society, in this time. I just wish I were younger, so I would be one of the builders and not one of the observers, but it is what it is. It is what it is.
1: Thank you so, so much. This is just amazing. I really appreciate
0: it, Heather. Well, thanks for having me, Becky. It's been yeah. great.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrude and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant
0: Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.